Hey, look at us. Who would have thought? Not me. 2019 is wrapped and we are now thrusting forward into the unknown of 2020 and water coolians. We have some big, big, big mounts to climb and I wouldn't want to do it with anyone else. I thought about spending this introduction talking about how well the show performed in 2019 in an analytical sense, but that's not how I want to view this show moving forward. When the show first aired, I was so preoccupied by every single analytic, which I want to say is important when needing to figure out what works and you know what doesn't, but that's not what I want this show to be about. I want the 20s to be about building the show as a conversational juggernaut, taking these amazing conversations we have on the show and being able to expand on them outside of this basement studio. Uh, as my friends at Quality Under Pressure Podcast say, a conversation is a beautiful thing. And, you know, I'm not exactly sure how this is going to look, how it's going to work. I am all ears, but it's something I'm looking forward to building together with you. A part of building a strong and passionate community is creating something that the community prides itself on being a part of. So I do very much in the 20s to come, the roaring 20s, the rolling 20s, whatever we decide to call it, I look forward to figuring that out together. I think it's also important to say thank you. It's been a, a very up and down year in my life and throughout anything I've gone through this past year, I felt confident that this show would help me get through whatever I needed to get through. As I mentioned in previous episodes, as a birthday gift for myself, I started going to therapy one to two times a month starting in May. Um, you know, I feel very mentally healthy, but I truly believe everyone should take the time to really focus on being mentally strong and finding something that grounds them. This show, on top of looking after my mental health in a professional capacity, continually grounds me and gives me an opportunity to speak my truth and to be honest in my beliefs. So I thank you for that. As for the best of 2019 episode, I have compiled the top five stories from Water Cooler Talk's 2019 guest slate based on a combination of what we both found interesting together. So for one last time in 2019, without further ado, this is Water Cooler Talk episode 29 titled Best of 2019. Enjoy. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. All right, Sam, are you ready to get to our final news story of the day? We mentioned Instagram earlier. They had a little update. I don't know if you noticed that they had an update recently. Maybe. I might have. I guess when people listen to this episode, they'll be like, oh, that was a long time ago. Because we record these a year in advance. We're yeah, recording yeah, in 20, no. the beginning of 2018. Uh, surprise, my resolution it failed. <laughs> uh, it was January 12th. Uh, done. Done. It was all done. All right, Sam. This final story is from the New Republic magazine. Is it ethical to post pictures of your kids on Instagram? This story was sent in by Danny Otway from the UK. Okay, so thank you, Danny, for sending in another listener submitted story. If you want to send in a local news story yourself, you can email us at watercoolertalkpod at gmail.com and you will be featured just like Danny was. All right, is it ethical to post pictures of your kids on Instagram? The French have given power to the children. According to a new French law, children have been given the option to sue their parents for posting a picture of them on any social media network that could breach their right to privacy or jeopardize their security. Parents could face penalties as severe as a year in prison and a fine of $45,000 or 45,000 euros, 51,000 about in U.S. currency. 
if convicted or publicizing intimate details of the private lives of others, including their children, without their consent. Eric Delacroix, an expert on internet law and ethics, states, We often criticize teenagers for their online behavior, but parents are no better. People should think about how their children will feel later in life about images of them as infants or adolescents being posted on Facebook or other social networks. Sam, is it ethical to post pictures of your kids on Instagram? They are your kids. I think it is, to a certain degree, it is ethical, as long as you go about it in an ethical way. Everyone posts about their kids. I mean, it's. I feel like it's a common thing to do. It's you an okay thing to do. And, you, or not show off your off, kids, but, but, you know, yeah, give updates, you know, kids. celebrate your kids. Like, hey, my kid just walked. Like, awesome. That's great. Or, you know, my kid won this award, which is good. Can definitely see maybe how it might become sort of unethical if you, like, use it to make money and, you know, profit off your child. Maybe that's not the greatest. But I think as long as you're like an ethical parent and like a responsible parent, you should be okay. I'm interested that like the French have this law like in place where they can where you can get fined for damaging your child's like reputation. Basically, kind of interesting. But I think is you know it kind of depends on the parent. In towards the end of the um, article, the author or the news writer or whatever, I think it was more of a blog, anyways. But they mentioned that, you know, in 30, 40 years down the line, we're going to see people go to therapy and they're going to be like, I was damaged by my parents posting so many pictures. Because this is something I've talked about before is having your whole life online from start to finish is like a very interesting thing that we've never experienced before. So going back to the first two stories, we're uncomfortable by it because we're not comfortable with it. We're comfortable with, you know, keeping to ourselves and not being open on the internet. We're seeing, that's why the younger generations are so open on the internet because they're so comfortable with it. But even like when I look at it, it's like talking about the privacy and talking about the safety of your kid. I think that's important because this article mentioned obviously pedophiles. It's easy pickings. That sounds horrible. That but sounds terrible. <laughs> with everyone posting like mommy bloggers, daddy bloggers, stuff like that, kids are easily accessible online. And I mean, pedophiles straight up disgust me. Yeah, definitely. Like, but, that's when you say, oh, I'm being an ethical parent, like you mentioned, being a good parent, but my actions could cause, you know, maybe a pedophile gets really attracted to my kid. And we've seen through, you know, all the studies, usually somebody who's going to go after your kid is a close family member or someone they know. So now you've just put basically a target on their back. Definitely not good. The parents should definitely be, you know, cognizant of that. Like, hey, let's not put... You know, certain I mean, photos out there. Yeah, I don't want to say like, but there's so many pedophiles in the world that yeah. every picture you post, there's not. There's not. But that's just like a concern I had. Yeah. When I uh, read this story. For sure. And I think there's, there's kind of like, a, there's like a fine line, I feel like, where there's like parents that are just posting about their kids, like just to post about their kids. And it's not like a huge issue. They're kind of being like everybody else, every other kind of like parent, even in like, like our parents. And then there's like the parents that are like, overposting that are just kind of using their kid as like this like item to kind of show like oh look at me i'm the perfect midwestern mother and you know like and subscribe so you can see my life that you want like well, that exactly sort of and especially on social media on just not only instagram facebook twitter whatever social media is do people still use snapchat uh, snapchat is growing like snapchat it's the, growing it's the it's place okay. everyone uses snapchat yeah no it's that's what i know it's, no yeah no uh, snapchat is definitely live and strong especially young amongst like younger generations i would say so sam samuel j rosemark also the cousin of adam schultz is saying invest in snapchat yeah <laughs> See yeah how that turns out in a year um but 
people on social media, everyone chooses what they post. They select, they're like, I want my life to be this, and that's what I'm going to post on social media. So parents are doing the same thing. You could be a shit parent. Be a terrible parent. You look absolutely amazing on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. People are asking you for your advice, and you're being the shit out of your kid in the background. In the background, the or ignoring them because you're too busy trying to figure out what you're going to post and making sure it looks good. Yeah, and I think, you know, going like what you said, I think you said a very good thing. Like, you're looking at your kid now becomes a product. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to sell this product. I mean, hopefully you care about, <laughs> hopefully your, you care kid, about your kid. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you're like, oh, I can make $50,000 a year from taking pictures of my son or daughter. Now they've just become a product to me. I care about them based on how many likes they get. And then that goes to affecting these kids in the future where they're having therapy because my mom wanted to meet that. And like they become like famous and like people are coming up to them in the streets. Like they can't live a normal life. Like, well, that's, that's also another thing that the article brought up is what happens if these kids get famous? Yeah. And what happens if they didn't want to be famous? Like you think of like the Kardashian kids, like they're going to be famous the rest of their lives. And they didn't say, Hey, I want to be famous. So do you think like that will have like a big social toll on them later in life? I mean, it could, yeah. If they definitely like don't want to be famous, I, mean, I could definitely see them realizing that they want to, you know, live more of a normal life and maybe doing some like weird like switch where they like switch with like a family and like live a normal life for like a week or something. But I definitely think that it could have a toll and might make them feel or think that you know, screw you, parents, for doing this to me. Like I don't necessarily want this. This is not how I want to like live my life. Well, how do like now as technology is growing, like we'll eventually have VR where you can take a freaking scan of your son's body and play with them in VR. Not, not like weirdly <laughs> The pedophiles play with them. will love that. The pedophiles are about, Yeah, there you go. There, yeah. Which I mean, at least it's not real children, I guess, but well, it was still not okay. Let's it's just make still it not okay. It's still yeah, not okay. It's still not okay. But I think as technology grows, there's going to be obviously different kinds of social media. I'm someone who always says to clients who I work with with marketing like social these social medias will eventually die they'll replaced by something else something's always improving so how do we keep those kids safe like what are some tools parents you'll be a parent eventually in the future hopefully i'm sure your mom would love to hear that part so, so she's <laughs> loving this part <laughs> but how do you how would you keep your kids safe yeah social media is definitely like kind of a thing that you have to i would say you should like teach your kids like how to use one thing is that's pretty easy is just making sure like everything's like private that's like instagram you have like a private instagram account or maybe like a private twitter snapchat you you control who's your friends that sort of thing so just making sure you have more control maybe making sure things are like private not letting your kid like start let me play devil's advocate on that yes so isn't that the same like choosing your kids profile to be private and choosing who follows them isn't that the same as saying oh you can't go hang out with melissa because i don't like her sort of i would say that uh if melissa wants to be your friend on your private account you can still accept like melissa's friend request uh but you're not airing out like all your stuff to all the pedophiles that live out in the world you know that sort of thing fair enough i think that's i think that's a good way to look at it when you look at like how do i protect my children in a social media age it's a very the golden age of social media and something i've talked about multiple times before is like setting up like classes in school just to be like how do i be safe on social media obviously women have such a higher advantage on social media 
because we talked about it. It's people want sex. That's what they want. It's there's this attractiveness to the female figure. So we need these classes to really say this is how I'd be safe on social media as a man, as a female, as whatever I um, identify as. These are tools I can use. This is, you know, resources I can use. This is, you know, whatever I can use to be a lot safer, to be a lot smarter too. Even like going down and using your smart goals that you learned that (laughs) I didn't learn. (laughs) But just being a lot safer and a lot smarter with what you post, but also being free to not feel like you oh I have to be very tailored on what I post I can only post if you're a woman I can't post any pictures of me in bikinis because some girls post bikini pictures because they want the attention some girls post bikini pictures because they feel really good about their body and they feel really strong and powerful it's hard to compare the two and kind of see the differences <laughs> between them <laughs> uh, so yeah I think I think it's important just to be smarter on social media And I think, you know, is it ethical, the question, is it ethical to post pictures of your kids on Instagram? Yes, I think, you know, it's, they're your kids at the end of the day. You have control of them. Not, not like control control, but you have, you know, legality over them till they're 18. So, I mean, if you want to post a picture of your son or daughter walking, you can do that. But also, I think you need to realize what are the repercussions of it. I think Facebook... Um, one of the Facebook CEOs was talking about if like Zuck? the Is this Zuck? No, it no. was another one of the guys. It wasn't the main guy, Zuck. Um, but if you post a picture of a kid on Facebook, Facebook will recognize its child, recognize it's your child, and be like, "Hey, you usually post to everyone on your wall. Do you only want to post this picture of your kid to your family or something like that?" So smart things like that. But also, it's like, oh. Is that like technology becoming too crazy where it's like it recognizes my kids and knows exactly who I want to post to? I don't know. There's yeah, a lot. That's of, a whole nother. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's a whole yeah, nother whole episode. Other can on of soup, mind. can of worms open up. Social media, golden age of social media. There's all sorts of challenges that you know we're all facing: parents, kids, teens, young adults, um, and social media as. You know, it's you're you're putting yourself there as like a product. You're refining your image on social media, and that in itself has a whole lot of interesting uh, implications and a whole lot of ethical questions there. Um, so yeah, I think this is a good story that kind of brings up this idea of you know kids and posting if it's ethical and all all sorts and stuff about it. And I think there's more to come on you know the ethical questions around social media because it is something where it's a new frontier we're still exploring um and the vr and like all sorts of other stuff it's going to keep happening so it's good to have you know kind of have these conversations and it's good to think about social media and how we're using it and like the whether it's ethical and how we're using it in a more ethical way yeah i like how you said it's kind of the new frontier it's like even like what we're saying now may not be relevant in 10 years from now. I'm Probably sure like not in five to yeah, two, I'm sure like three to five years 15 years ago, people were talking about MySpace and like... Jesus, MySpace. <laughs> was MySpace really 15 years ago? I That was just a number I made up in my head. Um, I never used MySpace. So. Someone's going to leave an angry email. For you, You're going to be like, what an idiot. But no, I think, that's, I think that's important to understand when we talk about social media. Social media is very young. When we think about like the internet and just humanity and TV and like entertainment and stuff of that general knowledge, because I mean, even like talking about this story, you think of like child actors, it's basically the same thing, but now you're on a more accessible platform. So when we talk about social media, it's like 
also it's like it's super young we're just figuring out these things like this is yeah exactly this is not a question we had 10 15 20 years ago um but it is a question today it is a question today and we somehow answered it somehow we think somewhat somewhat not somehow somewhat because maybe someone has a different opinion i would love to hear your opinion listener if you have a different opinion from sam and want to throw some angry emails at his face he will he will take them gladly all right well let's jump into story number two this is from university of rochester news center teenagers ability to describe negative emotions protects against depression A new study published in the journal Emotion came to the conclusion that teenagers who could describe their negative emotions in precise and nuanced ways are better protected against depression than their peers who are unable to do so. The study used the term negative emotion differentiation, or NED, which is the ability to make fine-grained distinctions between negative emotions and apply precise labels. Assistant Professor of Psychology at the University of Rochester, Lisa Starr, states, Adolescents who use more granular terms such as I feel annoyed or I feel frustrated or I feel ashamed instead of simply saying I feel bad are better protected against developing increased depressive symptoms after experiencing a stressful life event. Starr continues, Emotions convey a lot of information. They communicate information about the person's motivational state, level of arousal, emotional valiance, and appraisals of the threatening experience. A person has to integrate all that information to figure out, am I feeling irritated or am I feeling angry, embarrassed, or some other emotion? Once you know that information, you can use it to help determine the best course of action. It's going to help me predict how my emotions experience will unfold and how I can regulate those emotions to make myself feel better. The team recruited 233 participants with an average age of nearly 16 and conducted diagnostic interviews to evaluate to evaluate the participants for depression. The teenagers then reported the emotions four times daily over a period of seven days. 18 months later, follow-up interviews were conducted from 193 of the initial 233 participants. As mentioned above, researchers found that those who are poor at differentiating their negative emotions are more susceptible to depressive symptoms following stressful life events. And those who display high NED are better at managing the emotional and behavioral aftermath of being exposed to stress, thereby reducing the likelihood of having negative emotions escalate into a clinically significant depression over time. Eli, why do you believe teenagers struggle at a much higher rate to properly communicate how they may be feeling? I think one of the biggest reasons is that never, no one's ever really taught how to communicate how they're feeling. I think like when I'm looking back at at what I learned in school or camps or wherever I was, that was one of like, we never learned about that. And we kind of just learned how to describe ourselves as I had a good day or I had a bad day or an okay day and never to really go into depth of why it was a good day, bad day or an okay day. And that also happened in how we described ourselves like, and, and how we were feeling. I, I really think that we just never learned the proper way to describe how we're feeling. I also think another way is there's a lot of people who, and even myself when I was younger, afraid to really go into depth about how I was feeling because I didn't feel like anyone else would understand or that they're going through what I was going through. Um, so I kind of think like those two reasons are, are some of the you know, main contributors to why youth have a difficult time going into depth about how they're feeling. I know in my experience, going back to heartbreak, for me personally, I just didn't know the words to describe those feelings. Like the first time I went through heartbreak, I handled it in the worst possible way. Like I don't re- I don't regret any of that because as we talked about failures, I think failures are good. I don't regret any of that. I definitely would have liked to, you know, do things different. I know that's kind of counterintuitive, but 
I don't regret any of it because I just didn't know how to describe myself. You know, love, as we talked about, is one of the strongest drives that the human being can deal with. When going through that heartbreak, I was in love and then I had heartbreak and I was like, well, this is the first time I'm experiencing like romantic love and the first time I'm experiencing heartbreak. I have no idea, first off, how I'm supposed to feel with these emotions. And then second off, how I'm supposed to describe what I'm feeling. And I think that's something that can be very common among teenagers, adolescents, that they're having these feelings for the first time in their life. Because you talk about as a child, there's that childhood innocence. Everything is good. Everything is great. You're happy from everything. You're very optimistic. And as you become a teenager, you start to get these emotions. You start going through puberty. The chemicals in your body change who you are. You start understanding there's a lot more feelings than just happiness and anger and sadness. And you're like, I don't know how to describe these feelings. And then you get a case of, yeah, you know, you're going to class, you're going to camps and no one's telling you that, oh, yeah, you're sad because you miss that person and you're insecure because what if you can't find that someone like that again who can fill that hole? So I think that at least from my personal experience, is why I think adolescents tend to have much more mental health issues at a younger age just because they don't know how to really describe what's going on. Yeah, and I think they're able to describe it from a very surface level point of view of just, oh, I had a, I'm feeling happy or I'm feeling sad. And until I feel like until people are able to really go into depth of what are behind those feelings, that they won't be able to get the help or the support that they need in order to overcome whatever feeling that they're currently have. Kind of what you said, how, you know, my, you know, my situation isn't unique. I do believe, like, I think everyone is unique in the sense on the situation may be same, but how you look at it and how it impacts you is completely different. So as we mm -hmm. talked about in that first story, like a solution for someone may be ABC, but for the next person, it may be CDF. So like you're kind of unique in how you handle a situation. So it's tough to be, you know, to give a class to someone, to give a class to a group of kids and be like, hey, are you mad? Well, let's dive deeper into that. I think, you know, from kind of what I've experienced, I think it's better to do more of a, you know, smaller group one on one. Hey, you're mad. Let's talk about why you are mad, not all of you. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree with that approach. And I remember just kind of even thinking about when I was when I was going through my struggles and when I was receiving help for it. The, the beginning parts of my sessions were much more of like, oh, I had a good day or I was feeling angry or I was feeling sad. And the person would say, okay, well, what's, why are you feeling sad? And started to dig deeper and deeper into what led me to that emotion. And it also provided me with a great way to, to work through my problems and to really be able to analyze why I was feeling that specific way. Yeah, just because sometimes a lot of the times you think you're sad about one thing, but really it's something that happened six months before that kind of triggered that sad response or that happy response. What do you think the thing for you that like switch from I'm sad to this is a more in-depth response to why I'm sad? Like, was it just talking it out? Yeah, for me, it was talking it out and someone being there saying, okay, well, what's under that emotion? Why are you feeling that way? Is it something that happened today? Is it something that happened a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago? And just having that conversation with someone really gave me the ability to take, you know, a word like sad and blow it up into 
you know, a hundred different conversations of why I was feeling that way that day. And then you had mentioned in an interview through Authority Magazine on mental health services in schools uh, that counselors often suggest that the struggles of mental health are, quote, typical of a student and they just need to distress. Uh, with one in three youth suffering from mental health-related issues, how do we educate parents and people of authority and how to speak to these kids when they are struggling? I guess best, in my opinion, one of the best things parents can do or teachers or school principals can do is to provide an environment where someone could come forward, share how they're feeling or if they're struggling and not have any judgment or resentment towards that person. It really has to be a clear line of communication between the authority figure or the parent and the child. And when there is this mutual connection and understanding. I really believe that youth will feel more comfortable coming forward and sharing how they feel. And yeah, you, t- you t- mentioned the safe environment. You have been working with the city of Toronto to build affordable housing for youth impacted by mental health and addiction. Outside of providing that safe environment, and this is for the youth specifically, what other tools can we, you know, these teenagers use to help them handle situations involving mental health addiction in a healthy and productive manner? So one of the the best things that I did was create a support system around me because a lot of these things are extremely difficult to go through regardless of what age you are. And to go through this alone is awful and it's really tough and there's a really low chance of success. When you almost have a team behind you and around you, you're able, or at least in my opinion, you're able to create a system where you can actually get better and actually reach out for support and get the help that's needed. So I definitely think kind of putting that support system around you if you're struggling as a kid is fantastic. I think speaking to people about it as well can also really help uh, just because it kind of gets rid of that feeling of, oh, I'm alone. No one else knows what I'm going through. Because I can almost guarantee that if a kid's listening to this and they're struggling and they speak to one of their friends about it, the friend is probably going to say, wow, I know exactly how you feel I've felt like this many times before. How do you get to that point, though, where you feel comfortable enough to be vulnerable? So it definitely takes time. Uh, Initially, when I was sharing my story or reaching out for help, it started with one person who I felt extremely comfortable with. And as I shared it with that person, I kind of realized, well, nothing went wrong. They accepted what I said. There and they're they're helping me and they're supporting me. It then gave me the confidence to reach out to another person and, and share. And before I knew it, I started to feel more and more comfortable sharing my truth. Yeah, find good people. Like there's good and bad people in the world. Go where the good people are, and you know I think that's going to be very very helpful to not only you know your emotional health but your spiritual health and your physical health to just be surrounded by good people. Yeah. I mean, even going back to the, the, the fish article, it's like, that's, that's like a big part of that article. It's like you surround yourself with people that you like and that you enjoy being around. You're going to have a better life and a happier life. Before we move on, any final words to teenagers out there who may be struggling? Yeah. I think the best thing, if you're struggling out there, reach out for support, build that support system. Because going along this journey alone is really difficult and really tough. And when you have other people there to support you and help guide you through it, it really helps and makes the world a difference. Angie, are you ready to jump into story number two? It's like Howard Stern in here. Right. I know we're getting we're getting deep. Our last podcast was a little bit more lighthearted, but I love that we're going this route too. This is from BigThink.com. You weren't born just to be useful, Irish president tells students. 
At the Irish Young Philosopher Awards for 2019, Ireland President Michael D. Higgins had some choice words of wisdom for the young students. Uh, and just for the U.S. listeners, I know we have... Oh, I'm sorry. This story was actually submitted by a viewer, Elena Quinn, from Ireland. So thank you, Elena. I completely just skipped over that little note there. But thank you. She's from Ireland. But we have a big Irish listenership. Uh, so for those of you from the U.S., the president position in Ireland is the head of state and not the head of government as is here in the U.S. So Higgins would be more responsible for overseeing parliament. Their prime minister, Leo Varadkar, would take on a role we are more familiar with. I just want to make that clear that when we say president, it's not Trump president. Uh, anyways, Higgins cautioned against the idea that the educational system should be engineered as a system that operates under the idea that we exist to be made useful. He went on to say, talk of a knowledge society and the demand to enable our young people to meet its needs has come to dominate our view as the ultimate aim of a secondary education. We need to be careful. Many leading philosophers, pundits, and teachers throughout the later half of the 20th century have echoed the same sentiment as Higgins, declaring that the education system has lapsed in its initial purpose set out in its development. Higgins continues in his speech, too many policy lobbyists have, often unknowingly, unthinkingly perhaps, accepted a narrow and utilitarian view of education, one that suggests we exist to be made useful, which leads to a great loss of the capacity to critically evaluate, question, and challenge. Angie, does what Ireland President Michael D. Higgins said hold merit in our world? Do we need to create an educational system that relies more on philosophy rather than the maths and science? I feel there's a lot of that in our education system currently in America. I can't speak to how it is in Ireland and other places. What I love about this story and your listener that graciously. Elena, yes. Thank Elena, you very much. really great, thought provoking subject because, again, it makes us realize how more alike than different we are. And it's balance for me, Adam. I always look for balance. And I feel as though. What we're even teaching in our elementary schools, in our junior highs, in our high schools, and at the college level and master's level would be so well served to reflect the times of today. So I remember one of the podcasts you were talking about student debt. With Brian Grossman. Yes. yes and that was such an excellent podcast, Adam, because your generation and what you deal in are straddled with debt for college is far more than my generation was or the generations before us. So a lot of Generation Xers and Boomers and Golden Age don't even understand the level of debt. I just talked with a client who is in $250,000 of law school debt. That's insane. Young kids, you from going over to California or excuse me, Colorado, Colorado State, State yeah. you were in a lot of debt from one year. And I do think education is worth investing in. However, at what cost if you always have that hanging over your head? So what are you actually garnering from your college experience? I think so much of college is about the outside experience as just as important as the classes. And I feel like what's missing is where we are now in America. Again, can't speak to the rest of the world. And financial budgeting and life skills of that nature, boy, would we benefit if college kids, high school kids, before they made the decision to go to college, learn that. I feel like really being up on par about journalism and media would be a required course for everybody starting at the elementary school level, because now we live in this 
supposedly fake news society, which there is fake news, but there's also damn good journalists out there. And I feel as though how we consume news in my generation to your generation to the older generation is completely different. How can we all understand where the others come from? I think that would be a great class. And again, that's more about a philosophy. It's people exchanging ideas and learning from each other. I think that's great learning. Just critically thinking about how situations occur and how they can be solved is really important. And for this specifically, I know he had mentioned, you know, people shouldn't be just cogs in a machine. I feel like it's very, very important for people just to exist. Like you don't need to exist for any one reason. Just exist in the world and be a part of the world. And I know that's very hard to say when you, you know, you can say, well, I got bills to pay and I got, you know, things to do and I need to just existing doesn't solve those things for me. I need to get a job. I need to get education to get an even better job and all these things. And it's hard to really look at just existing, especially in, once again, we can't speak to the international listeners. And I would love to hear what they have to say for this. But from the U.S., we have been kind of in the situation where, you know, the American dream, let's go from there. The American dream was the fact that if you work hard enough, you can get anything you want in life. And now through generations and generations and generations, it's been built into us that work hard and you'll get what you want in life. Like we even had this discussion before, like it was always in my mindset on you have to have a very blue collar sort of mindset. You have to really work hard to get what you want. But no, you have to work smarter. I think we've talked about this in the last episode with you is work smarter, not harder, because that's the importance of it. Going back to just existing and being, that's not always possible. That's what you would want in the world. But it's not always possible because we're not always given the time to deal with like difficult situations like if you go in debt from school or if you go in debt from medical reasons you're fucked like there's not much you can do to get out of that you have to completely change your life to what you may have wanted just existing to now this life of I got dealt a shitty hand and there's not much I can do my life is now on this path because of just being dealt this shitty hand and I can't exist. I need to be the person that solves this path or gets to the final conclusion Mm -hmm. of this path, pays off this debt, for example, and I can't just be who I want to be. And I think that's something that is just very negative and something I've always been against. Just like, you know, like we've been saying, it's like we can't speak to our international listeners, but I feel like there's this concept in America, and I'll ask you your opinion on this, where it feels like we're always focusing on how to be happy and not what that means. Simply being. Exactly. Well, you're speaking my language because obviously Be Your Brand is one of my companies and I work with leaders to be more and do less. And I feel as though we are in a very much doing, doing society. And in order to make your dreams happen. I believe you have to have the doing and the being work together. But what I've noticed is that if you are doing, 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 and you are not being good to yourself and you're not being good to the world in the process, then what's the point of that? And I feel like your point of you really don't have to do anything really is beautiful because there's this beautiful quote, Adam, that says, if the only thing that you did today was breathe, that would be enough. And I love that quote because just the exhale of energy and just you being on this planet is a gift. And I feel as though we always have to be in motion and going towards whatever we think we're going for. And I think that's in 
that I think that's a very American mindset. I think that is, and I don't know if other countries feel that way, but to me, that feels a very U.S. American. That feels very U.S. American mindset of what I talked about—the American dream. You always have to be going to accomplish what you want. Your value is determined by your output. It absolutely is, and I can speak—you know—I can't speak to every country, but I can certainly speak to Asia because I've. Got clients there, and I've worked there, and they are equally pushing themselves. Those kids—I mean, those kids have such high expectations on themselves at four years old, five years old, six years old. It's not very much different to what we have in, say, in New York, where kids are or parents are fighting to get their kids into the best kindergarten. You know, we've set up this competitive situation. In education, when really I believe education comes in many forms. What we're doing right now is education. We're sharing ideas, and I feel like what was interesting about the article that you shared is that they also talked about history. And there's so many viewpoints on history, Adam, from so many different countries. If I was in college, I would love to hear what Ireland's perspective is on America, and I'm sure they would love to hear what our perspective is. There's the Native American history. There's the African American history. There's Asian American history. There's Muslim American history. I would love to see all that discussed and taught in colleges. And in junior highs and in high schools, and particularly when we're starting out, from all perspectives, I want to know what the Native Americans think of history, not what the white people think about American history. I want to know what Muslims feel. That's how I believe we will all come together because we just don't know their perspective. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. As someone who is a history buff, you very quickly learn history is written by winners, and often those winners are white males. So that's a very construed. History. It'll be yeah. It'll be amazing to see how other nations and other people and other, I guess, just other people in general have seen history. Like, what is the lens that they've looked at history through? As not always the winners. Like, how this may be a more of a aggressive look at it. But like, how did Nazis see World War Two? Like, that would be very interesting. Not saying what they did was okay whatsoever, but just seeing their take. On what history looked like. I agree. I think that would be incredibly interesting because, again, it's it comes down to that connection, and then we're starting to understand the other person's point of view. The reason I mention media and journalism is because right now that's all over the world. It's not just America. That's what's so heavily contested. What's out there? I went to St. Cloud State University in um, Minnesota. It's about an hour and a half from the Twin Cities. And I was a mass communications major. So I was in public relations and then my minor was in marketing. I was the editor of our college newspaper as well as a writer. And I was also a writer in high school. And I really love journalism. And I had the most fantastic instructor at St. Cloud. His name was Mike Fadney. And he was one of the most integrity journalists that I've ever known. And Even in that class, it still stays with me, we had to describe a car accident. And he had us all read our submissions. And every single person with the same car accident had a different perspective. It could be where we were standing. Mm -hmm. It could be because of that mood we were in. 
But even if you're being objective as you can, we all as humans see the world through our own lenses and our own biases, and we don't often see those. So anytime I see any of the news, the the mainstream news, Fox News, CNN News, that's not, in my opinion, that's not the traditional news that I grew up with. You know, that was when the the 24-hour news cycle started and then everything changed. And I know you've talked about that. Media used to be the watchdog of government. Mm -hmm. And now it's become propaganda for both sides of government. And I don't think most people realize that news stations are businesses. And same thing what we talked at the beginning of this podcast with brands. We as a consumer shape. If you don't like what you're seeing on the news, you have the ability to change it. They are going to follow where their consumers are going. I, I very much agree. And I like how the perspective on the car accident, because, yeah, it's like you have no idea. I think, you know, Sarah Silverman had mentioned something on Armchair Expert with Dak Shepard on, and I had mentioned on the quality under pressure podcast when I was a guest on there. It's like you follow love. You go to what you're comfortable with. It would be I would love to have a white nationalist on the podcast just to see their perspective. I don't have to agree with it, but I just want to see how they think and how they view the world and how they see what I'm doing is okay. Because, you know, kind of what I talked about is people will follow love. They'll go to where it's comfortable with them. If their family is a racist, they're more likely to be a racist than someone whose family isn't because that's what they're comfortable and that's where the love is. That's where there's a community because people want a community. At the end of the day, even if you're a person who likes to be alone, you really want a community. Going back to, I've talked about it multiple times, like the 100 person community is like what we all strive for. Something that I can be someone who, even going back to the first story, I can be someone who matters in my community. That's all people want. They just want to matter. So when you talk about you know, a clan member or something and why they think that way. They just want to matter in the eyes of their community. They want to fit in. It's a lot easier to fit in than be uncomfortable. And we talked about being uncomfortable with Alexander Nedved on just sitting in that uncomfortableness is super hard. And I think that's incredibly interesting. And I think something that is very important on why we need to teach more philosophy is to ask questions like that and have the conversations that those questions may elicit. I think that's I think that's really, really right on the money. The other thing is, is on Netflix and I'm blanking on the name of it right now. I'll have to send you the link and you can put it up for your podcast listeners. But there is a documentary exactly doing that. Somebody that talked to white nationalists who is a oh, I don't remember. Were they like a former Klamath? No, no, they, they, like no, no, they, no. It's somebody in Islam, an extremist, okay. and then it's else. also a white nationalist. And she basically went to them and said, "Tell me why you don't like me. Just let's lay it all out." It's really interesting. I haven't watched the whole thing. I've just watched some stories about it, so I'm interested to really go in there. But once you get to know somebody and connect with them, you're going to see different points of view. And in fact, because of that documentary, at least what I read in this article, and I'd have to research it more to make sure it is in fact true or fact, it changed beliefs within each of those organizations. I do think the one thing to be careful about when you're giving a platform to what many would consider hate speech is if you're giving them a microphone. Right. That's to spread their true. message even point. further. Mm-hmm. And I know 
some big leaders in the world that have big media platforms like Oprah Winfrey before said she would never again have the Ku Klux Klan on her stage because she understood after they were on her stage that she was basically just a pawn for them. And they even admitted that they knew they were going to get their message out. However, if there are parties coming to the table to truly connect, which it sounds like in this documentary there are, then I believe there's always that common connection point. And maybe you walk away and you don't always agree with each other, but you'll understand each other. You talked about that woman going into these conversations and then being okay with walking away and say, we didn't agree. And I think that's very important when you, you know, especially with philosophy, I think is a big ideal of philosophy is going into conversation, having a conversation, but being okay with realizing that other side of the table is not always going to agree with you and being okay walking away from the table and knowing you said your piece and knowing that you put your philosophy out there to the world and maybe it wasn't accepted, but at least you put it out there. I think you're I think you're correct with that. And the caveat to that is souls have to be willing to connect. You know, when you can connect with somebody and have a deeper conversation and you're really coming into that conversation with the intention to connect and you're not coming with the intention to press your agenda on somebody else wonderful and beautiful things can happen because all of a sudden that is a person sitting across the table from you. And exactly what you said is people want to feel a part of something. That's why a lot of these young men are joining these extreme movements. It's not because they believe in the cause. It's because they are lost souls. And there is a way that we can come together, I believe, as a nation, as a world. It's sad to me that people feel they have to go to these extremes to feel a part of something. And you even see it on social media, Adam. The other thing I was thinking about, and we've talked about this at length, is we have a... We are now part of the newsmaking organization, whether it's a podcast, whether it's what we're putting out in social media. If something goes out on Facebook, it competes with the nightly news Mm -hmm. and people will perceive it often as fact. And people are posting things that are absolutely not true and they're not checking the facts. And then it's being spread further and further. So one thing that we all have control over Every single person in this world that has freedom is you can always research to find out what is true, what is not true. And then even if it's true fact or not true fact, go back to that story about reporters. They're going to still see it through their own eyes. So even the most unbiased reporter is still going to have their perspective. But you as a consumer, when you're posting on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, you can decide what you're putting out. And everybody could go on their Facebook wall now, and this is just one way we could improve the world really quick, in my opinion, delete anything that you don't know is 100% true, whether you agree with it or not. And when that's like a, I like to say to my audience is don't trust what I'm, don't always trust what I say. Like I would like to think I have some sort of credibility because I put in the time to do the research and make sure my facts are up to code. And now we're adding on a new segment of the corrections and making sure everything is to board because I know at the end of the day, not everyone has the time to do all the extra research. So they trust people. They trust journalists. They trust reporters. That doesn't always work like that story. Maybe some reporter reported that and somebody was like, I don't have the time to do the research. I'm going to trust this person. They have credibility in my eyes. So and now that information is what I believe. So I think that's important to I think it is very important to find the time to do the extra research. And that what I want. And that's what I want people to 
believe from this podcast, even if we do corrections, double correct my corrections because you don't know where I'm getting my sources from. I could be bullshitting you every exactly. every stat I throw out here, every kind of saying I throw out here, every quote, even these stories. I could be making up all these fucking stories. You would believe me because you're like, well, he seems like a credible guy. I believe things he said in the past and they're true. So I'm just going to blindly put my faith into what Adam says. And I appreciate it. I would love to start, <laughs> a, to rule the world love to start and a cult and get going, you. but... If you're sharing things, it is important to double check where you're you're getting your information from. And that's why I believe more philosophy in school, people will think differently. I'm not the biggest fan of the sciences. Um, that was like one of the things in schools, like chemistry was something I really struggled with because I didn't understand the concepts of it. I didn't understand what needed to be understood. And any of like those scientists or any of those sciences, I was just like, this is not, I don't feel comfortable in this area. And I know there are plenty of people that are, but I wasn't. I was, I'm more comfortable in the philosophy of it. How we view the world is where I feel comfortable in going back, you know, all the way back to talking about sitting in that uncomfortableness. Like, yeah, maybe I need to understand the science side more of it to properly throw out my opinion and be credible to potential listeners. But is that something that's beneficial to the world as a whole? Like, if we put more philosophy in school, would that be beneficial or would that just or would the science people be like, well, this isn't beneficial to me. This isn't working. So you have, you know, I don't want to like split the world up into philosophy people and science people, but that's kind of how it is. Like when you think of the big picture of religion, right? The religion versus science debate, like that's, you can completely split a population by that argument. And if you do it with philosophy, which is the basic premise of religion is based in philosophy, questioning why are we here, mm -hmm. then you can say philosophy and sciences are, the world can be split up into those two categories. So if you want to do one more than the other, there's going to be a group that says, well, this isn't working for me. Let's go back. And finding that balance and realizing where does that balance lay? Well, exactly. And I think even in particularly the college system, you know, on the other side of the coin, there's a big discussion out there of going and how liberal teachers are putting all sorts of thoughts into these kids, which is, in fact, somebody's opinion. And I can see that side of the issue as well. Right. The same thing with what's going out from conservative sides, if you will. So there's all of that kind of stuff. Whereas to me, if you are going back to your question about the leader, if you are just putting things out there in the world, you're putting them out there because you're sharing them. It's not because you have an agenda. If the minute That's the, a very good point. the the minute the intention becomes to persuade or righteousness is I am right and you are wrong, that's when we get into the divide that particularly we're seeing in America. Everybody thinks they're right. For me personally, on every single issue, somewhere in the middle. So what I do, what I find very helpful, is I research all sides. I listen to media that I wouldn't even normally follow just to find out what what is their perspective. And I go into it, here's the important part, with an open heart. When I'm voting in an election, I think Matt probably thinks I'm crazy or maybe he loves it. I don't know. But I research the candidates for at least three hours. I look at every single issue. I don't care if they're Democrat or Republican or independent. I don't vote that way. I really do my best to be an informed voter, but that's just what works for me. But I don't think we do that. I don't think I think everybody's so busy. They think they're so busy. They don't have the time to research. Like you said, they just take things at, at value. But it's the most important thing you can do. 
in my opinion, don't put out anything unless you know that it is fact and it is not backed by a propaganda on either end of the coin. And listen to other people that have the complete opposite view of your own. That's how I get better every time. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You might not like Stephen Colbert's intro in his monologue, but he does a really good interview. There's just, you got to balance things out. I think there's always information there. No, I think that the very Stephen Colbert is a very good interviewer and reminded me of um, Howard Stern. Speaking of Howard Stern, he was just on Conan's, Conan O'Brien's podcast. And I was never a fan of Howard Stern because it was very visceral radio. And then having him sit down with an interviewer like Conan O'Brien and you really get to see a different side and how or not the how, but the why he was like that and why and how his show has changed. I was like, it made me a fan of Howard Stern. I was just like, wow, this is a really good guy who basically doing what I'm doing, but in a more open format and far, as far as being more open with the guests. Like, hey, you know, let's talk about your sex life. and But having that be beneficial to the interview. Because I feel like talking about those things and the show and um, general talking about these taboo things really opens up people like what we talked about at the beginning really opens up people to be a much truer self when I can say hey I masturbate every day whatevs and now I feel much more comfortable <laughs> sharing oh, who I am your doesn't want to know that I'm kidding but I, I understand what you're saying yeah. I understand what you're saying um, and then to kind of just wrap up this story here Angie I want to ask you this in your own personal experience what are we here for I believe we're here to simply be. And what that means for every person is completely individualized to them what being means. And it's a it's like the question of the ages. You know, I don't know why you chose to come to be on this planet at this particular time. I'm still figuring out as a human and a soul why I chose to come here and be who I am. I feel like that question is one that I personally will probably never find an answer to that feels like the answer in this life. Whereas when I go to wherever I go, maybe then it'll all fit together and maybe I'm going to fly back down here again and give it another go. I don't know that answer. I I feel like even saying we are here to wait, make the world better is me putting judgment on what I feel we all should be here to do. I have no idea what every person came here to do and be. All right, Jake, are you ready to jump into some uh, texting skulls? Oh, some skull language? I am ready. This is from Newsweek Health. Humans have started growing spikes in the back of their skulls because of smartphone use. Uh, listeners, as you're listening, I would want you to, or like you to press your fingers into the back of your skull. Did you check yourself? I did, yeah. I couldn't uh, find it. Just above the neck. So press your fingers into the back of your skull just above the neck. If you feel a small spike, you may be among people whose body has responded to smartphone use by growing new layers of bone. I don't think I have that. I don't know if it's my spine. I don't know how hard, how high up my spine goes. I'll let you keep reading. I have a lot of opinions on this story. Uh, I don't think I have that spike, but I would love to hear if any of my listeners do. And I'd love to get a photo of it. I could not find a photo of it. I don't know if you looked up photos of it. No, that'd be gross. The phenomenon called external occipital protuberance was initially published in the Journal of Autonomy in 2016 by health scientist David Sherhar, who in the last decade of his 20-year career began to notice that once rare protrusion, more often in patients of younger and younger ages. Uh, the phenomenon was 
initially discovered in 1885 by French scientist Paul Broca. Shahar and his co-authors looked at 218 radiographs of the lateral cervical spine of people between the ages of 18 to 30 and found that 41% had a lump. 10% had a spike at least 20 millimeters long. Uh, a growth for this has to be at least 5 millimeters long to be counted, and anything bigger than 10 millimeters long is classified as enlarged. And it was much more common to be found in men, 67% versus 20%. The buildup of bone on the external occipital protuberance is a type of anisoftites, which is a bone projection of a tendon or ligament through gradual growth and is relatively common in older people, but is quite rare in young people. Shahar states that their finding could be explained by the rise in the use of handheld technologies from early childhood and said ways to prevent and treat girls should be considered. He continued that as we look down at devices, our necks must work to keep our heads in place. I think a head weighs like 10 pounds, I believe. Um, and prolonged straining could lead the body to build new bone to increase the surface area holding the mass of the head. To back up his study, Shahar used another study published in the journal Scientific Reports of 2018, in which out of 1,200 participants aged 18 to 86, older people were less likely to have an external occipital protuberance? Protuberance. Protuberance. I don't know why I can't say that word. <laughs> uh, than younger individuals. Jake, should we be worried about these types of changes to the human body because of technology? This is such fucking bullshit. <laughs> I, this is the dumbest fucking thing I've ever read. This is such bullshit because, okay, I was reading this and I was thinking like, okay, there's something with, you know, the, the, the light rays from our phone into our eyes the way that, I don't know, I guess that's doing something. But the only reason it gives is that we hold our heads in a way that we're reading our phones, right? So it, do you, when you read a book, do you hold the book in a place that's not the same place as your phone? I also had that same thought and I like read more studies on it. And it's not because we're looking down because we've always looked down like newspapers, tying yeah. our shoes, stuff like that. It's because we look down with more frequency. Like just because we're doing it periodically throughout the day? Yeah, we're doing it much more than, you know just reading a book throughout the day or not having a smartphone. But I still don't think that's the case. Because even like, if you're if you're on your phone, you're holding your head at almost the same place as when you're like typing in a, on your computer. Well, I think they're kind of contributing it to technology as a whole. Kind of right. um, similar to like... Well, I'm, I was just saying like, because if, if you work an office job, you would do that for like eight hours a day. Yeah, and that's and that's one of the things that, you know, I found like carpal tunnel syndrome mm -hmm. used to be very rare. But then when we got into the system of typing, it skyrocketed. Like I have carpal tunnel syndrome. And I mean, because I, yeah. I work at a computer yeah. a lot. I just feel like, I feel like so many of these stories like this are just using technology and like millennial culture as a scapegoat <laughs> like they're just like oh people use technology a lot yeah i guess that you know that ex that explains testicular cancer <laughs> it's like what i used to be this is a bit of a side story i used to be ter like one of my biggest fears in my life is not being able to have children so and i still kind of do it just subconsciously but i don't like to have my laptop, laptop on your lap on yeah my lap. i remember that i remember when that was a big thing too yeah and I mean, I feel okay. That's a little different because I feel like that might actually be real. Because like it's really hot <laughs> oh, down no. there. For, it's really hot down there for a long time. But like I don't know. I just feel like I think our bodies are changing because of technology, not at a evolutionary speed because that's just ridiculous. But kind of how they explain this and kind of the research I did on this protuberance, I got it right. There you go. Is that it's not like an evolutionary? Hey, Darwin, a bird needs to eat this certain certain seed, so they're gonna change their beak to eat that seed it's more of just like the more you bend your head down the more your like neck needs to support the weight of your head which mm -hmm. i believe is 10 pounds um so this bone strengthens up your neck 
kind of deal. And I know there was this example someone said about, uh, do you watch the show Archer? I have, yeah. He has like bone spurs or something in his arm. Oh, but yeah. But that's like something your body responds to by having, you know, getting hit in the arm a lot. So your body responds to that stimuli. So I think, like, I think they also said, like, there's no, like, cause and effect to this. Kind of like yeah. in summer, there's more murderers. So when we eat ice cream or what was it? Do you know that? No, one? I don't know what you're talking Where it's about. like, there's more murders in summer. So people are like, well, the more people eat ice cream, the more murders happen. But it's like, there's no oh, cause shit. and effect. It just happens that more people are murdered in summer because yep. it's nicer out. And they said that's kind of the deal. Like, I mean, it could be this. Like, they were very vague and connecting yeah. the two. It was like, maybe it could be this, but it could not be. Yeah, I mean, I just feel like, I feel like the way that heads are held for, like, being on our phones and, like, with technology and stuff, I feel like it's, I feel like it really can't be that different from the way heads have been held for throughout history for different reasons. Like, the way that your head might have been held when you're, like, shoveling. I'm sure, like, the direction of your head is pretty similar to the way <laughs> that you... weird example. Because, like, I, that's, like, manual <laughs> no, 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 like yeah, manual yeah. physical labor, like, 100 years ago or something like that. Yeah. Like, I feel like it's really not that different. It, the only thing that's different is that you have a phone in your hand as opposed to anything else. I, I totally get that, and I totally understand where you're coming from. I just think it's a case of the frequency over the actual act of it. Like, I feel like we're just looking down more. Like, you know, you see people walking in a city, you see, like, movies from before smartphones were huge and people are heads up looking. Whereas I now guess that's true. you see a movie with people on the phone or you see a movie nowadays that the phone has been developed and a lot more people are looking down at their phone. I totally get what you're saying. I think it's a case of our body responding to a new frequency, a new change. Like you mentioned the I thing. It's like, I think we are living in a time where we have more bright light in our eyes so that's affecting our eyes and affecting our vision i don't think it's like a evolutionary trait where we'll develop evolutionary changes or stronger eyes right. or yeah. something because of technology but i do think our bodies change a bit and i don't know if it's you know to this level but i do think our bodies change a bit to technology i guess yeah i don't know i don't know about frequency because i mean i don't know i guess i don't know i've never i don't know how frequent people have done things in the past mm -hmm. i only know how frequent people look at the well, and now. that's like yeah totally from my opinion too it's like yeah i don't i don't know i wasn't alive back then so i'm just going off of like what i think it could be and i could be totally wrong i usually am <laughs> yeah <laughs> i am not totally wrong listeners. well now you can say protuberance so yeah now you're protuberance. right at least once. now i can say yeah. it right i think the reason i came to my conclusion is i like took a look at how people respond to like i feel like i bring this up all the time because it needs to be talked about more but how people respond to social media from from a chemical balance, people, I don't know the exact chemicals, but say like you post a photo and you get a bunch of likes and you feel much better, like dopamine. You get more dopamine into your system and that's a effect because of technology. I guess, no, I guess, you know, maybe your point is making more sense to me now because like if you took a picture of yourself and showed it to people, I wonder, that would be an interesting study to see like if there's a difference in dopamine levels based on posting a photo on social media, getting those likes or posting a photo in real life and people saying how much they like it. Yeah, I mean... I feel like now that you now that you agree with me, I'm going the other way. That like <laughs> I, I think it's different because the amount of photos posted on social media is so much higher than the amount of photos that would have been taken and developed and shown to people in real life. And so it's like there's no way you could feel the amount like that happy about every single photo that you posted, as opposed to like you think there's like a gradual decline yeah. in 
how much dopamine and I think so, yeah. you get from like phones. I would think so, probably. That's no, that's very interesting. I've never I guess I've never thought about that because yeah, that totally makes sense and I guess even further is my point why social media is so bad because yeah, the more you use it, the less you're getting out of it. Social media social media has its social oh, so far away. <laughs> social media has its pros and cons. I mean, I think for us and the work that we do for marketing and exposure, it's very important. Well, that's that's one of the things I thought about this. I was like, I don't, I maybe I'm not a doctor. I should let you know that. Um, okay, good. But so I don't know if I have that thing. I might, I might not. Um, but I do have to use my phone a lot. I do have to use a lot of technologies a lot. You know, I mentioned I had carpal tunnel because of constantly have to be on the computer, and a lot of my a lot of my work is done on a computer because yeah. I work internationally. I just think that people have to be like more up to being like. There's a lot of good things that come with technology but there's also we have to like start realizing the bad things that come with it too well yeah i mean i don't even know if it's so much you have to realize the bad things you just need to learn how to um you need to learn how to use it responsibly that's a good really Mm -hmm. because i mean i don't think there's necessarily like inherently like i think i think ultimately the pros outweigh the cons for social media and like technology and stuff and the cons mainly come from not abuse of power abuse of abuse of use I don't fucking know what that would be, but like from using it in a poor way. No, that totally, like totally makes sense that we need to use it more responsible rather than looking at it as there's bad things and good things. Like just, that's why I think like we need like social media classes and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, no, we definitely But do. like I've talked about it on another podcast, Quality Under Pressure, like that I feel like our generation and the generation after us are like the most fucked when it comes to like the effects of social media because we're still figuring out like what are the effects and how to be responsible. Because we were just like thrown in the deep end with it. We, yeah, we were just just basically like here's these options to get these chemicals in your body to feel better to feel worse to get everything out figure it out yourself so i'm very interested and also like with like i'm trying to think about how to how to how to ease into this like how to like with the rise of like can't like cancel culture kind of a thing like you know where like you you maybe tweeted something like 10 years ago and now it's coming up to haunt you kind of a thing while the things that people have said are shitty they had no idea 10 years ago that you're not supposed to do that you're not supposed to post shit like that on on social media like you didn't like we were thrown in the deep end so we didn't know how to use it responsibly like i said we don't we didn't know we didn't know the long-term effect exactly yeah and so i think i think like you were saying our generation the next generation is fucked i think especially the people who like in our generation i think now they kind of have figured out what you can post and what you shouldn't post but i think prior to now i think yeah well i think it's even right now we're still in that state of we don't know in 10 years what we post now will be okay that's that's true i feel like but i think but i think now they're taught to at least think about the consequences which is good you know like they've because they've seen the consequences yeah that's a good point to be able to see what happens when people are like well, the thing I wanted to talk to you about with this story is like the kind of reliance on technology. Um, so recently, Target Systems went up down. Yeah. I don't know if you saw this. Yep. I was at a Target. Oh, while you were? It happened while it was I happening. was going to go to a Target, but then I heard that it crashed. And so I was like, no, I shouldn't. Yeah, I was at Target while it was happening. I thought like people, it was like the day before Father's Day. And I thought people were just like last minute shopping. And that's why I was so busy. But anyways, I just saw like technology breaking down 
and people not being able to rely on technology. I just saw a very interesting kind of look at what how people reacted. Like there were some people who were awesome and the Target Target did an awesome job on like handling that whole situation and people were like giving out free coffee and gift cards and like updating you every 15 minutes or so. But there were some people that were just like so pissed off at just the situation that it was just like why are you doing what you were doing? Why why is this behavior becoming a thing? And I feel like, you know, to this story on, you know, does technology affect us as humans, our behavior, our body chemistry, our bodies in general with this protuberance story? You know, do you think we're too reliant on technology to point on it will take us? I mean, eventually, if technology goes away, obviously, we'll be able to evolve to a point where we're fine without technology. But do you think we are too reliant on technology now. I think yes, but I think that's the way that it's been throughout history with different revolutions and different things. Like they, like, you know, back in the day, or way back in the day, you know, <laughs> they like people would use rocks and sticks. That was it. And then, you know, they learned how to make weapons. Okay, well, then you could say, are they too reliant on weapons? No, that's what they used to survive. And then, like, going further on, like the Industrial Revolution, I'm sure at that time people would say, you know, whoa, are you too reliant on this? Like the invention of cars. Are you too reliant on cars now? Let's let's pump the brakes. Let's go back and let's just keep using horses and buggies. But now cars is like the norm. And that's perfectly fine. You just need time to adjust and you need time to like figure out how to live with this new, with the changing world of technology. So like, I, just, I, I want to ask you this just so I'm clear on what yeah. you're saying. Are you saying like technology is our tools of today to survive? Yeah, I think survival. I think a lot of technology is going to help us survive, but there's also a lot of things that are more for entertainment and stuff. But I think it's just it's 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 the next revolution that's like changing the way society works. And like there have been different things that have changed how society works throughout history. And then it happens. People are like, whoa, what the fuck? And then it's fine. Yeah, I guess. And I, so guess I feel like I yeah, just feel like now on. we are still in the kind of, whoa, shit's going. Just like the like, beginning. Yeah, of like it. it's mm-hmm. just like, whoa, sh- this is crazy. There's so much happening. Yeah, that's true. Just give it some time and then you'll get used to it and it's fine. No, that's a very good, like, cause, like, I mean, like interesting lens Like even it. think about now, it's 2019. Like in the 90, 80s or 90s, whatever, when like the internet was invented, people lost their goddamn minds. And that was a whole big thing. And people were like, well, we, you know, we can't use it for too much. But now the internet is standard. Like now I think that the internet itself is like more um, accepted and stuff. I think, yeah, like it's more part of our daily life. Exactly. Like we're used to it. And so we just need time to get used to these technological advances. Does that make sense? Am I? No, I, that okay. No, it doesn't make any sense. Oh, I have good. No idea what you're talking about. No, that definitely that definitely makes a lot of sense. On yeah, we're just we're in the early stages of this technological age, mm-hmm. and we still haven't going back to the social media thing. We still haven't figured out the responsibilities to use it correctly. And I feel like yeah, it's kind of that ebb and flow of like the revolution of the industrial revolution. It's like at the beginning, it's like holy shit, what's going on? Then you get it to the peak and you're like, awesome, this is good. We know how to use it. We're productive with it. And then it declines and something else takes its place. Yes. Um, no, I think that's I think that's a very good point. And I mean, yeah, pretty much where I fall into that is very similar. I think, you know, we're still figuring out technology. We're still figuring out the effects technology has on us. But yeah, it's just, I think, you know, to hammer home your point, I think we just need to be more responsible and figure out how to be more responsible and find Going back to your first point on, you know, this not being a potential cause of technology is we just need to f- 
not always blame technology for our issues. I think I even do that a lot. So this is like a good self-reflection of not blaming technology for issues, also realizing technology brings a lot to the world. Like I'm able to have podcasts with people in Europe and Australia now because of technology. So you have to kind of, I think, I think technology is, we're still in that, whoa, what the heck is this point? But it's also, we're getting used to it. Like we're getting used to the internet and we're just so used to it being a part of our daily life that we don't notice the benefits of it. We right. only notice the negatives exactly, of yeah. it. Yeah. All right, Noah, are you ready to jump into our final news story of the day? Talk about some environmental things. I know you are an environmental guy. Oh, you know I am. You know I am. <laughs> so we save the best for last. This is from KFYR-TV, North Dakota, U.S. Senate votes to ban cities from banning or taxing plastic bags or straws. The Senate of Bismarck successfully voted 31 to 14 to pass a bill preventing cities and counties from banning or taxing plastic bags, straws, and cups. Within the past year, numerous moves have occurred within the United States implementing a bag tax or a ban on plastic straws to help cut down on America's 10.5 million tons of yearly plastic waste. The bill, after passing both House and Senate, this is the House and Senate of North Dakota, just to be clear, will now go to the governor's desk. Noah, you are now the current, get into your acting phase, you are now the current Republican governor of North Dakota, Doug Burgum. Does I this... know his niece. Oh, do you? I know his niece, yeah. She's my friend, Jesse Burgum. I was what? in a show with her. Mm-hmm. So you better be careful what you say. I know, he saw me. <laughs> ah. Does this bill pass through your office signed or not? This bill does not pass signed. I just want to call out the wording of this bill really quick. I've never heard of a bill that bans to ban. It's banning the banning. That's just, isn't double negative an equation that you should just keep out of any bill? I don't think the government ever cares about literacy. But yeah, it's like obviously no one in their right mind would pass this bill through. It might it might be passed through. Who knows? Well, it's 31 to 14. So yeah, everyone knows. That's like, a surprise. At least going through um, the governor. Uh, but everyone knows Bismarck, North Dakota is a bit backwards. For our international listeners, Bismarck, North Dakota, a bit of a backwards state. They like to do everything a little different. Uh, but anyways, I thought it was quite hilarious that the supporters to this bill kept on saying that these bans would be and taxes would be a burden on business. It's like, no shit like recycling is like not an automated thing it like right. takes time to do it it's like you have to sort everything to and get it change it's not easy or else you yeah. just do the change and it's like it's another thing that's like oh yeah that's gonna cost businesses more money but it's like i mean in the end it's like yeah save a dollar but and it's it, ruining the earth for every business cost too we're also up against an environmental cost and does that not have just as much weight as the business cost that's what i'm confused about it's like we're so concerned about business business business, but we're not concerned about this huge planet that is feeding us. And When I think a lot of people look at it as, I'm going to make my money now, I don't care what happens when I'm dead. I think that's a lot of mindset of these CEOs and these big businesses that cause a lot of the pollution is, as long as I make my you know, buck now, it's who who gives a fuck about what- It's the hamburger. You, You see what you eat- and it looks glossy and clean, and you don't have to think about the rest. You just eat, and you. That's a very good. Right. That's a very good analogy. These are a few facts. The EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, estimates that almost seventy-five percent of U.S. waste can be recycled or composted, but we're only able to recycle about thirty-four percent of it. And since China wants the base for most of the world's recycling. Rec- 
restricted their recycling ports to the world and mostly the U.S. in early 2017, these numbers haven't improved. Noah, besides banning the state of North Dakota, how does the U.S. improve its recycling efficiency? Wow. Yeah, what a question. we're bringing the big questions here. And this is when recycling was solved, when the global crisis... Right now, Noah, solve recycling okay. for okay. America. I knew this was coming. I did know it. That is something I've thought about a lot because a lot of people recycle and they get that immediate satisfaction of doing something good. But where does that recycling go? A lot of it doesn't actually even get recycled. It just gets thrown into the trash. And so then you think that you're doing something when you're actually not. So that's been a problem I've been thinking about a lot. I believe the solution is composting. Composting just makes so much sense to me because it decomposes naturally. And so this waste problem is immediately out the door when these compostable items are taking care of themselves. And I... I've been noticing a lot over campus because University of Minnesota is where I go to school and there's a lot of environmental movements within the university. We've started seeing a bunch of compostable coffee cups, compostable to-go boxes. More like biodegradable things. And I think those are amazing because they're guilt-free, but you still get that ease and that consumer satisfaction without having to take make too much of changes. And I think one of the things that I think a lot of people overlook when they think of their second plot recycling problem is like how gigantic the U.S. is, not in scope of like population size, because, you know, like China is bigger than us, but just like how far spread out, like you just went on a road trip and I, there were times where you probably didn't see anyone. Oh, totally. Yeah. And like, when you think about how spread out the U.S. is, a lot of the recycling problems come when it's in like rural areas or areas that aren't big cities. Like, yeah, we can talk about LA's recycling problem, Minnesota, Minneapolis, New York, because those are all major cities. But what about those thousands and thousands right. and thousands of small towns? Like Peter Spendelo, the Department of Environmental Quality in Oregon, said a lot of that rural recycling just gets thrown in the landfill because mm. they it like the co- a lot of our waste management is private companies. So right. to be as we talked about in the last story, to be as cost effective as possible, they're not going to go all the way driving out to this little town, driving back, sort through the shit, and then drive to the different recycling plants. They're just going to be like, we're going to drive out there, we're going to dump it at the landfill, and that's it. Because landfills, like if you think about a landfill, like there's no, it's the cheapest option to get rid of trash. This is where I think government regulation needs to come in a little bit. Because if you give everybody free reign and you say, your goal, go make money, they'll do that. They'll make that money. And they won't really think about these things that we've talked about that they might be doing in the process that are actually really harmful. And so I think that's when the coach comes in and says, hey, everybody, remember, we got to play by this rule. And this is a rule. And you can still play the game, but at least follow this rule. And I think that kind of action with recycling, with the kind of products you're making and the ways you're making them and the things you're going about with your business need to be overseen a bit more than they are now. Yeah, definitely. I think that's very true. Very true point is like, yeah, if we tell these private companies, it's like, hey, you can have these routes, whichever most cost effective, that's the one we'll choose. They're going to cut corners to do the most cost effective job. So I definitely think the government needs to have a bit more say in how we what we do with our waste management. And it's really easy for me to sit back and look at these people and see them as villains and these hateful crime ridden people. But in reality, they're me. They're people just trying to survive, 
their daily life, get through a lot of the traumas life can throw at you and get through it as easy as possible. And so it's not their fault either. They're just trying to make their days. Yeah, that's yeah. that's like something I never, that's a mind blowing yeah. thought you just had there. No, because that's something you never think about. It's like, these are people that just, this is their job. Like right. their job is to do this. And if they don't, they'll be fired. Yeah, or and they they'll have, lose their company. Yeah, or yeah. They, they have families to support. They have bills to pay just like all of us. It's just, you know, you you never think about that. It's kind of an evil system and not so much an evil person. I don't know if there are truly people who would be that evil. Well, there are. There, there's some. There there's, are. there's some out there. As I was saying, that, I was like, <laughs> you just there thought are. of like 20 people <laughs> in my own life. I think the, the biggest thing that people like don't realize about recycling is no matter how much you recycle and you trust these companies to recycle for you, it's not going where you think it's going. Right. Just because what we've been talking about, just the cost effectiveness doesn't make sense. Like, you, they, I don't, what's that little like recycling circle called? Oh, reuse, recycle? Or Reduce, no, it's like reuse, something, recycle? it's like some theory or something how recycling works. Like, oh, that you like make a bottle and then you drink from it and then you cycle it and it's made into oh, it. It's something yeah. like that. Reusable but anyways, goods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was some professor, I can't remember, I should have his name down, but he was saying that a bottle will run through that circle like five or six times and then it'll eventually end up in a landfill. So really all we're doing with recycling is just delaying the process of a getting to a bit. landfill. Yeah. And a lot of people don't know the rules that you have to do exactly. to make something recyclable. You have to clean it. You have to get all the food off of it. A lot of people don't know these kind of stipulations. And so all of that, all of those goods, even if it's their first time being reused, are immediately thrown away just because they weren't clean. Well, and that's a very good point, Noah, and it'll bring us back to what this whole story is about. There is a lot of different rules for recycling. Basically, if you read into more of it and you read between the lines and what the bill actually says is they want to regulate themselves. Mm. They want to have their own rules that is cost-effective for themselves. They don't want to have to follow a national outline because that may not be the best outline for them. Make it a local thing. Make it a local. Have the locals decide... What do we need to re- what do we need to recycle that's best for us? How can we make it as easy as f- for our people? Because if you used to say, oh, throughout the U.S., you need to recycle plastic straws in this bag, and you need to put caps in this bag, it's like that's a lot tougher than saying, hey, we understand, you know, recycling is hard. First mm-hmm. off, it's like a very hard thing, but to be more local with it in Bismarck and North Dakota, and just saying, hey, you know, nationally they want us to do this, we want to do something that's better for our people. We're looking out for our people. We don't. North Dakota doesn't give a shit about Minnesota. They don't give a shit about California. They care about themselves. So that's why I support kind of this banning of the ban. And it makes sense because just as easily as you could have something in favor of maybe better recycling nationally, you could also have something against recycling procedures nationally. And then you also have to follow that. So that's a good point in that having this national regulation could be harmful to so many different cities. And I think there's, I mean, we talked about, I think, I definitely think that the government should have a bigger play in waste management. I don't want to sound like a hypocrite after what I just said. I definitely think, I think there's a good balance between a local and, you know, a national kind of look at how to, how do we perform waste management to the best of our abilities. I don't even think it's like something they can do. I think it's more of something we can do as a consumer because we consume so much. Like our consumption is way out of control. Oh yeah. And then there's no place to put this trash. So like we can recycle all we want, but it doesn't matter if we keep consuming at these levels. And that's why I think 
I, I personally really love these co-op movements that are coming into play. And they've been in play, but I feel like they're growing in popularity where you can take your own jar, you can take your own Tupperware to the grocery store, oh. fill it up, have no waste in the process, go home waste-free. I think that's amazing. And I think that could be a really big solution if we took the time to get used to the work it takes. And I think I think the biggest thing is, I think you had mentioned the three, what were the three R's you mentioned? Reduce, reuse, recycle. Reduce, reuse, recycle. So like obviously recycling, but that first one, reduce. Reduce. Like just reducing what we consume and right. just being smarter on how we consume. It's exactly, it's like we don't need to go and have... 10 different bags from our groceries like I love all these oh yeah Uh, first off it's super cheap but then you know you don't have a bag so a lot of the time it's just throwing a bunch of my groceries in my trunk and then just figuring out how I get when I get home how to transfer that in the house but still that's like a lot better option than having like 10 different bags and then you just have that bag of bags type thing and then where does that go and I think what's most important and this is why I thank you Adam for doing this and igniting this is this conversation because I know this conversation is something my parents aren't having and every time I go home I get so angry at their overconsumption and their avoidance of all the waste that they are bringing in and throwing out without thinking. So it really does take this conversation to even notice how much waste you're using and to even notice the effect you are making just by yourself, the environmental footprint. Exactly. And I think even talking about your parents is once again it's like that generational thing. It's like they back then it's like no one really gave a shit about the environment. We were in this industrial boom. We were making cars left and right. It's like people really didn't think about the environment because we didn't see the effects of it. It was the and, nuclear family. Yeah, and now that I feel like our generations and the generations moving forward, now that we have a better idea of the environmental impact, like who's that one senator who, like AOC, what is her name? Oh yeah, Alexandria. Cortez. Yeah, when she's like she's like more our age and closer to our age, and she understands more of like right. how we're talking. I think that's why a lot of younger people really are attracted to what she's saying is because she actually understands where we're coming from. Whereas like when you talk about like older senators and House of Representatives and politicians in general, they're coming from an older generation that didn't understand that. And it's like, it's a lot tougher to learn a behavior than it is to grow up in a behavior. Right. And I feel, I feel like a lot of people are burdened by that generational gap because what they see it as, or what it's easy to see it as is this huge PC parade basically with so many rules that are left and right falling upon you if you go in this parade and it seems like this huge waste of time waste of energy but all you really have to do is take those things into awareness you don't have to be super sensitive about them to where you feel like you can't talk but just know oh that one thing hurts people or that one thing has an environmental effect or this one thing could be kinder If we just took the effort to be kinder in all the ways we could, that's what we're asking for. We're not asking for you to say this exact script. We're just saying be aware of your impact. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, like when you start questioning their beliefs and their behaviors, they get very defensive. And instead of listening, which would be the obvious solution, they get defensive. And that's when you get arguments and debates and stuff of that nature. And it's all just about listening and being kind and respecting another person. And it's also about talking, too, which is something that has a little bit more pressure. Because even looking at this sonic debate that we had earlier, the way that they left that letter, the employees, they're saying, I think they called them motherfuckers. They're saying we can't handle this shit. It's very loud and nobody can listen to 
screaming. It's it's yeah. It's hard if to you go into in. negotiations, they're gonna be like, "Well, you guys are just telling us to fuck off yeah. left and right." It's like, why would we listen to you? You're taking away your power in mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. So it's it is a back and forth, but it's a lot easier than it it feels. I think. I think I, I read something the other day that said like we have so many options for communication these days, but we don't use it. On this road trip I just went on, I felt like I knew my friend to the fullest I could know her. I've known her for four years and I've decided things about her. I have my judgments. I have my things I don't like. On this road trip, we got so bored of driving constantly that we basically talked about everything we could talk about. <laughs> and we ended up talking about these things we didn't like about each other and hearing her perspective behind what she was doing, I was like, oh, that actually makes sense to me. I totally understand where you're coming from. It's that communication that we're lacking that we can really bring us together if we wanted to. Yeah, and build a stronger friendship. Or maybe you realize that that friendship wasn't needed. And I think that's like, I think that's why I love road trips because that was one of the big moments on my road trip. I did a road trip by myself for listeners who don't know. It's just being able to have a talk with yourself, just like a real honest talk with yourself and be like, this is who you are. Is this who you want to be in five, 10 years? And I think that was like one of the bigger changing moments in my life was having that conversation with myself. I would have probably had a similar conversation if it was with someone because (laughs) road trips can get boring. It's like, I remember listening to Hey There, Delilah like freaking a hundred times. I'm so sick of that What's song. What's it like in New York City? That's the question. But anyways, Noah, to close out on environmental, the banning of the banning, what's your closing opinion or what's your closing words to change any opinions that are seesawing right now? All right, I have them. And these are uh, self-written, reduce, reuse, recycle. That's a Noah Kazi phrase, right? <laughs> That's the way to do it. And like to go off of that, it's like I think once you reduce, try to get your waste consumption to as low as possible, reduce as much as possible, then you go into reuse, compost, doing that kind of stuff, biodegradable stuff. Then when we get to recycling, we That's actually have the infrastructure to keep up with the amount of recycling that we have. Recycling isn't the first solution. It's yeah. to be the last. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not, because they're real.